in John chapter 9, Jesus and the healing of the blind man. But before I begin with that story, I want to start with another story from George MacDonald, a story that he wrote, a children's story, back in the 1800s called The Princess and the Goblin. In the story, there is a little girl by the name of Irene who discovers a microscopic small string like the size of a spider's web. She notices this string and she feels this string and she wonders how it has gotten there. After inquiring about it, she learns that this string has been produced by her great-great-grandmother who happens to also be a fairy. And this string is attached to a far-off mountain. Irene discovers that when she puts her hands on the string and she follows it towards the mountain, the string is always there. But every time she turns around and tries to go the other way, the string disappears. And so Irene decides to figure out where this string is going. As she goes closer and closer to the mountain and finally enters into the mountain, the string finally ends when she discovers a boy by the name of Curdie. Curdie's been captured by the goblins, and no one has found Curdie for many years. And he's completely astonished that Irene has been able to find him, and he asks her, how did, the, how did you ever find me? How in the world did you know I was here? Irene then goes on to explain to Curdie that she followed a microscopically small string that happened to be floating in the sky and was attached to this mountain, and she followed it all the way to him. Well, Curdie is taken aback by this and says that he's never heard of such a thing in his life. What a, a foolish idea. An invisible string or an almost invisible string that leads to the mountain to where he is. It's completely absurd. Foolish. Curdie then thinks that Irene is just making up the whole story. Well, Irene begins by saying that it's foolish to call something absurd just because you've never heard of it before. And secondly, she agrees that this is something that is quite unusual, but the question remains, how did Irene find him? When no one else has ever been able to find him, how is he to explain that Irene found him? And to this, Curdie has no answer. Now we're going to come back to that story. When Jesus healed a blind man, he broke many cultural rules. He broke many superstitions. He broke many of the stereotypes. And the fact that Jesus did this on the Sabbath day caused an uproar with the religious referees of the day. Just listen to the fallout from this healing miracle story. If you turn to John chapter 9, we will start today from verse 13. So the man has been healed, and now the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are beginning to challenge both Jesus and the man 
about this healing. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus has, had made the mud and opened the blind man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the, Sab- the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees concluded from this that this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath laws. But the others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this really your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll tell you himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Okay, give glory to God, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you don't listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Like the blind man, every one of us here today has a story. As Christians, we all have a story of how we became followers of Jesus Christ. But not everyone sees our story the same way that we see our story. Even when our story includes something extraordinary. For instance, back when I was in junior high, my dad suffered from terrible back pain. 
the, the pain was so bad that it affected his work as a painter. I remember times when he would be sitting on the couch, and for him to go from a sitting position to a standing position would take almost two or three minutes of him slowly making his way into a standing position. Now, this went on for a couple of years. He saw many doctors. They tried a lot of different things to see what was wrong with his back and how it could get better, but it just wouldn't get better. And then one time, he was at a church meeting. And as they were discussing things and discussing also some of the disability that he was in, the people at that meeting decided to pray for my dad's back. So they gathered around him, they laid hands on his shoulders, they laid hands on his back, and they prayed for my dad, and he was healed. 30 years to, this, to that day, my dad still does not have problems with his back. Now, how do you explain that? I remember living through that in junior high. Was it psychosomatic? Uh, was it Reiki? Was it God? How do you explain what happened to my dad? And then there was a time in high school where I was at a youth conference. I was lost in the crowd. There were, there were hundreds and hundreds of youth all around me. There was a band that was playing and singing, and we were all jumping around with our hands in the air. And then I had a complete stranger come up to me, tap me on the shoulder, and said that he needed to speak with me. And so I just kind of pulled off to the side, and this individual looked at me, had never seen this person before in my life, and said, I just had a vision of you preaching, and God is calling you into the ministry. Now, the thing is, is I was already thinking about going into the ministry prior to this guy telling me this. So how do... You explain that. What was up with that? Was it just coincidence? Was the guy a fortune teller? Or was it some kind of affirmation from God? The invisible string may seem like nonsense. But somehow, Irene found her way to Curdie. Somehow, my dad and the pain that he had in his back was healed. Somehow, a stranger made a really good guess as to what my future occupation would be. And somehow, this blind man could see after he had an encounter with Jesus. But as we have read in today's story, just because something happens, even something miraculous, not everybody interprets it the same way. It's not a slam dunk proof of God because it depends a lot on the glasses in which we look through and how we see the information. Somehow, the fact that the blind man could see did not fit the theology of the religious teachers and what they had studied in school. 
all of their knowledge of scripture and tradition and custom did not prepare them for what just had happened. They were teachers, but their minds were already made up. And as an aside, it is actually ironic how close-minded professors can be. Uh, They are in a position where they are teaching others how to be learners, but I know from my own experience and from many others, often teachers can model a very surprisingly limited ability to keep learning and reconsider ideas or things that go against their preconceived theories. The religious leaders were like this. Their minds were made up. And therefore, because their minds were made up, when something as obvious as what had happened, happened right before their eyes, they had a different interpretation of it. And let's be honest, we're all like that. Whether we're here today as Christians or non-Christians, every single one of us is like that. Our preconceived ideas profoundly affect the way we view information. If someone comes to you and tells you, or even a friend of yours comes to you and tells you that last night they were abducted by aliens, if you don't believe in aliens, you are not going to believe them. If you believe in the possibility of aliens, then you might believe them. If you yourself had an experience of being abducted by an alien, then you probably will believe them. A lot of it is going to be interpreted by your own experience. I'll give you an example from myself. Now, I personally don't believe in near-death experiences. People dying in, in supposedly, see there's my bias already, supposedly traveling to heaven or to hell and then coming back and telling us uh, case stories about it. I've read numerous cases and I don't find the evidence convincing. However, I know other people, godly people, Christians, that read the exact same stories, the exact same evidence that I've read, and they find them convincing. Now, I realize that I start with a certain theological assumption that according to the way that I read the Bible, it doesn't make room for pre-resurrection trips to heaven or hell. And those that disagree with me start with their presuppositions on what they then use to interpret the data. Now, I could be wrong. And I try with an open mind to learn and to understand the reason why other people take the positions that they have. Hopefully, I'm humble enough to change my position if I am convinced by the evidence, but Again, let's be honest, it is extremely hard to look at evidence without being affected by your own biases. We're always filtering the evidence. That's why Jesus could do the kinds of things Jesus could do, and it wasn't automatically convincing for everybody. Some people saw it this way, others saw it this way. Tom Sawyer, one of the best novels ever written by Mark Twain. One of the stories in that novel is of Tom Sawyer wanting to find all of the marbles that he's lost. And according to Tom Sawyer's beliefs, if you take one marble and bury it in the ground, 
and say an incantation over the marble and then come back 24 hours later, all of your lost marbles will appear with that one marble. So that's exactly what Tom does. He buries the marble in the dirt, does his incantation over it, and then leaves, comes back 24 hours, and digs up where he buried the marble. Guess what? There's a problem with his theory. Because when he digs up the marble, he doesn't find all of his lost marbles. Only the one marble that he buried is there. So Tom now has to deal with his theory. He scratches his head a little bit and then comes to the most obvious conclusion. Obviously, during that 24 hours, a witch came along and broke his spell. Now, as soon as he comes to that conclusion, he sees a little beetle walking across the ground. And he says, well, I need to confirm whether or not that's what happened. It really was a witch that, that broke my incantation. That's why all my other marbles uh, didn't come back. And so he crouches down to the ground where the beetle is crawling. And he speaks to the beetle and says, doodlebug, doodlebug, tell me what I want to know. Doodlebug, doodlebug, tell me what I want to know. And then he puts his ear right down next to the beetle to hear the beetle tell him if it was a witch that took away his incantation. And he listens, he puts his ear very, very close, and hears absolutely nothing from the beetle. That confirms it for Tom. There's obviously a witch going around breaking every spell that he is putting out there. You see how easy it is to miss the truth because of our preconceived ideas. Tom is so convinced that his incantations work and is so convinced that this is the way the world system works that he can't come to the conclusion that it's just simply superstition. That's why these things aren't working. He just thinks that there must be some other spell that's undoing his spells. Lately, I've been doing a lot of reading from the court documents from 1692-1693, the Salem Witch Trials in Massachusetts. Fascinating stuff. Um, during that time, there were 19 people that were hung for witchcraft and one person that was crushed to death for witchcraft. They continued to put rocks on his chest until he would confess that he was a witch, which is a very ironic system because once you confess, they killed you. But they kept putting rocks in his chest and he wouldn't confess and then it crushed him to death. Also, five others, including two infants, died in prison awaiting trial for witchcraft. And as I'm reading these documents and I'm reading the actual case studies and some of the fits that people are falling down and having while they're in court and some of the different things that I uh, th hear them saying... Uh, the 17th century leaders of the community at that time heard these very things, recorded these things, and they, in their methodical and scientific research, concluded witchcraft. I read the same documents, read about the same things, and from my grid, I read a lot of group hysteria. I read a, a lot of mental illness going on. And it's a real stretch for me to be convinced of locking up infants for witchcraft. That doesn't even enter my worldview. 
And get this, I actually believe in a spiritual realm. I believe in occultic powers. And so I'm even open to the idea of possible witchcraft. Those that completely rule that world out look at those same documents that I've just talked about and attribute all of these weird happenings at Salem to some kind of poisonous fungi that entered into the food source of the people. And they give different theories of some of the different uh, fungi that can do that that can cause hallucinations and panic and fainting and seizures. So, which is it? Witchcraft? Mass hysteria? Or food poisoning? We're all looking at the same evidence. So a lot depends on the glasses that you're wearing when you're looking at the evidence. The bigger question is, is it possible to change your glasses? Is it possible to be able to look at something with new glasses? And to be able to see something in a new way? How could Jesus' healing of the blind man evoke such different responses from people? All looking at the same evidence, and yet one group seeing this as the work of the devil. Another group looking at the same thing and saying it's the work of God. Give glory to God. Some people looked at it, and what they saw was some kind of a trick. Maybe he wasn't the same man. Maybe he's a different man, and we're just mistaking it. Other people say, this is the man. And it's not a trick, but it's a miracle. How can there be so many different opinions about the same data? And if people can interpret the data so differently, what does that say about all of our evidences that demand a verdict and all of our cases for Christ? You put it all out there, but people can read and see the evidence so differently. Even when struck by lightning, some people will see it as God getting their attention, and other people will see it as just bad luck. Just as some saw my dad's healing as from God, and others saw it as mere coincidence. The blind man, however, knew the futility of trying to convince people by arguing because of the grid in which they would look through, and so he just kept telling his story over and over again. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you don't listen. Have you ever gotten to that point in a conversation with people? Sometimes you need to just step back and say, I think there's no more point talking about this. I've certainly gotten to that point where you're just like, I've told you this so many times, and you simply are unable to listen, are unable to see. Why do you want to hear it again? He almost says this sarcastically. Do you want to be one of his disciples too? Obviously, everything that they've shown him up to this point shows that they don't really want to be a disciple of Jesus. How do you argue with a story when the evidence is staring at you? The man could 
see. They brought his parents to him, and his parents verified that this was their son. He was born blind, and that somehow he could see. The evidence is before them. Often, one of the best sources of evidence of an encounter with Jesus is a changed life. Somehow, Irene found Curdy. Somehow, the blind man can see. No one can argue that a change has taken place. The question is, what caused the change? What causes a change when a husband starts to become more attentive and considerate? A friend releases her bitterness. A worker starts putting in an honest day's work. A parent starts asking for forgiveness. A community member moves past their prejudice and becomes friends with their Sikh neighbor. A soccer player learns to control their temper. A community member learns to express his opinion without belittling the opinions of others. How do these changes come about? Everyone has noticed that something is different in them. What happened? And many times you hear from people that what happened was they met Jesus. I once was blind, but now I see. First Peter writes, if someone asks you about your hope, as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this with gentleness and respect. If someone asks you about your hope, if someone asks you about the change that has taken place, well, how is anybody going to ask you about the change or the hope that you have if they haven't noticed anything? When people notice a change, when people notice even this guy here, when he now can see, even the skeptics were asking questions, how can you see? And what did he do? He was always ready to explain it. A man called Jesus, came along, made mud, spit in the ground, made mud, put it in my eyes, I can see. What? How, how can you see? I told you, there's a man named Jesus. He came along, spit in the ground, made mud, put in my eyes, and I can see. But that just, that, that can't be. That Jesus, when did that happen? On Saturday? No, that's the Sabbath day. That, that can't be from God. What, okay, what did you say happened? What, I told you, a guy named Jesus came along, spit on the ground, made mud, put in my eyes. I can see. What's wrong with you guys? Can't you hear? You want to be one of his disciples too? He just kept going back to the story. I can see now. I can see now, and you're going to have to do something with that information. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee for anybody. Even with the evidence, what we read is that when he finally said this again, then they hurled insults at him. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
See, the Pharisees were not able to get past the way they saw things. Their way of seeing the world was very similar to the disciples' way of seeing the world before Jesus challenged those assumptions. And that is, remember when they first encountered the blind man, and the disciples said, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Is it because he sinned, or is it because his parents sinned? They were operating from a system of all suffering is directly equated to some kind of sin, either directly from you or from your parents. The Pharisees were so ingrained in that world that even after everything that happened, all they did was go back to their glasses and accuse the guy of the very same thing the disciples were asking Jesus at the beginning. They simply looked at him, and when he gave them the evidence, they simply said, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? See, you're blind, and you were born blind, and that either means you're a sinner or your parents are a sinner. And even though you can see now, we don't, get it, we don't believe it, and according to our system, you still are a sinner from birth. Get out of here. It's the state of a hard heart, a closed mind. Once again, even then, he simply responds by telling his story. That's remarkable, the man answered. You don't know where this Jesus comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. As we're going to see next week, the real twist in the story is the following conclusion of it. Where we find out the blind man here is now the one who really can see. Not just physically. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who can see physically, we end up discovering are the blind. The question that we have to ask from all of this about ourselves is how are our eyes? See, we all have to examine the glasses that we have on. Both Christians and non-Christians. Because if we don't examine the glasses that we're using, the information that we are interpreting could be interpreted wrong. There are two eyesight dangers that all people need to be on guard of. They need to be open to hearing from other people, and they need to be willing to challenge themselves to find out if they are falling into one of these two traps. The first eyesight danger is the poor eyesight of seeing what is not there because you want it to be there. The danger of seeing what is not actually there because you just really want it to be there. This is the poor eyesight of the gullible. Guilty of seeing what you want to see. Because you just want to see it. We're convinced the anonymous email offering us $10 million is true. Because we want it to be true. 
And so we are just convinced. You know, all of these different scams going on, there would not be nearly as many people being pulled into those scams if we were a little bit more skeptical. But we want it to be true. We are convinced by the stories out of South America of people rising from the dead and growing back missing limbs because we want it to be true. And so many times stories like that even in church circles get continually passed around without any actual verifiable evidence. But we don't even bother looking into whether there's evidence for it because we're just so excited because we want it to be true. It's the problem of poor eyesight of the gullible. And so on the one hand, I really respect the Pharisees. We can be very hard on the Pharisees, but I respect the Pharisees' rigor to scrutinize and examine everything. I probably would have been a Pharisee. And the healthy part of that is that they are not going to be tricked by a charlatan. Because they question, they research, they look into it, they try to figure out how this aligns with Scripture. And that is to be commended. There are a lot of unhelpful and hurtful beliefs that spread around because people are unwilling to examine things or to take off their glasses and put on another pair of glasses to look at things differently. And so we want to avoid the danger of seeing things that are not there just because we want them to be true. But the flip side of that is the poor eyesight of not seeing what is there because we don't want to see it. That is the flip side is that when there's something really is there, but somehow we can't see it because, again, we don't want to see it. In one of his sermons, Charles Spurgeon tells a story of a friend of a scientist, an astronomer, who discovered another planet. And when he told his friend about this, his friend said, that is absolutely not true. There is not another planet. There's only seven planets in our solar system. There's no more than that. And this astronomer said, no, there is another planet. I've discovered it. And so he got his telescope, he set it all up, he found the other planet, aligned the telescope right to the planet, and then said to his friend, look, look through the telescope right now and you'll see it. But his friend said to him, I am not willing to look through that telescope because I do not believe there are any more planets out there. And if I look through that telescope and I see another planet, that's going to make me get all weirded out. And so I simply refuse to look through your telescope. Now, it might not be as drastic as that, but we can be that stubbornly blind, absolutely refusing to look at the evidence that is right before us because we simply don't want it to be true. When we get into even questions of the whole origins debate of uh, evolution and things like that, there are some Christians, I haven't even kind of landed myself on that, but there are some Christians that just absolutely refuse to even study evolution on the off chance that it might be true. Well, that's willful blindness. 
Are you willing to look at the evidence? Though it is hard, we have to keep examining the facts. Be willing to listen to differences of opinion. And be willing to change according to the evidence. Lest we become like the Pharisees in their negative side. And that is unable to see the truth of God when it's right before their face. We need to also be able to regularly do this with our ideas about God. Our ideas about the truth. Our ideas about Jesus. Our ideas about what the Bible is really teaching. To be constantly examining. There are many things I thought the Bible taught 20 years ago that I'm not so convinced of anymore and think quite differently because of continually examining and putting on different glasses. Can we ever know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our story is true? I remember once I had this existential crisis with my brother on a chairlift once. We were skiing, we were halfway up the mountain, and then somebody must have fallen off or something at the top because the chairlift stopped. And we were just dangling there 100 feet off the ground for 10 minutes or so, freezing as the wind was blowing and the chair was kind of swaying, and there's nothing else to do but start philosophizing when you're in a situation like that. So. I just looked to my brother Michael and I said, so Michael, how do you know, how do we know any of this is real? I mean, what, what if this is just all a dream and none of this is real? How, how do we actually know? And my brother said to me, well, you, you could jump off and see if you wake up from your dream when you land. I never tested that theory. But the evidence seems to be in favor of the fact that this is real. The evidence seems to be in favor of a creator God with an intelligent mind who is creative and personal. The evidence seems to be in favor of Jesus and of his resurrection and of the fact that he healed blind people. And the evidence seems to be in favor that I am the kind of person I am today because of an encounter that I had with Jesus. And the evidence seems to be in favor of the fact that millions of others from all around the globe have had similar experiences and can affirm the same things. Now, yes, I could be wrong. But I also know that the more I move away from Jesus, the more blind and stupid I seem to become. And the more I move towards Jesus and keep Jesus as my glasses, as the lens through which I see the world, the better I seem to be able to understand and see everything else. And so like the blind man, that's my story. And so I choose, based on that, to by faith bow my knee to Christ. Which glasses are you choosing to see your life through? Because see, whether you know it or not, everyone does so. Even the atheist starts from certain presuppositions that they take on faith to then interpret their world through those glasses. We need to examine not only the world, but we need to examine the glasses from which we are viewing the world. 
Is it time to change your glasses? If we never stop to examine the glasses, and we're only always examining the world through the glasses, we may never realize that our interpretations are distorted. We may get stuck like the Pharisees and be able to, unable to see what's right before our very eyes. And so the challenge of this four-week series, the challenge of John chapter 9, the challenge of the visuals you see behind you every week, is to ask each and every one of us, is it time for us to book an appointment with the eye doctor? To have our eyesight checked. To examine the lens from which we're viewing the world. And just possibly, just maybe, decide that we need to change our glasses. To try on the glasses of Jesus. So that we're viewing life through the grid of the Jesus of the Gospels. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now as we move to a time of communion... We come and we bow before you as new community people. Those of us who have chosen to wear you, to put you on, to allow you to be our glasses through whom we interpret the rest of life. And so in the same way, God, when we have those glasses and we look at these elements before us, we do not see just bread and the cup. But we see what they represent. Your body and your blood that you shed for us. And Lord, as believers, every time we take of these elements, we remember who you are, what you've done, and the fact that you've opened our eyes. And we remember also that you have formed us into a new community people. So that now, not only do we see God differently because of Jesus, but now when we look out over at our brothers and sisters, we see them differently because we see one another through the eyes of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we celebrate, as we partake of this time now, may we reflect on who you are and how you have changed us and how you have changed the way we view life. In Jesus' name.